From the McGrath Institute for Church Life and OSV Podcast, this is Church Life Today. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. The question at Christmas is not about whether God will act for us. The babe born of Mary is the answer. God has given everything. The question is really about us. Will we receive Christ? This is a most magnificent reversal and a most perilous one. He in whom all things are created, in whom we live and move and have our being, is given into our hands. The host has become the guest. And we who depend on God for all things are called upon to become his host. Christmas is not only a time of great consolation, but the beginning of the great decision. God is all in. Do we accept him? Everything depends on our answer. In this special episode of our show, I will lead us through a series of reflections upon the mysteries of Christmas. These reflections were initially part of an article I wrote for our Sunday visitor, who is also, as you know, our podcasting partner here at Church Life Today. I do not have a guest in studio with me today. Instead, I hope that together we can welcome the Word of God as our guest, pondering the depth, beauty, and even the risk of God coming among us in the flesh. Let's start then by talking about the danger of Christmas. You know, it's not typical to muse on the parable of the sower during Christmas, but I think it should be. A sower went out to sow his seed, and the seed falls upon all manner of earth, some along a path, some on rock, some among thorns, and some into good soil. Jesus told this parable to a great crowd, and then he goes on to explain the meaning of his parable, but not to everyone. He opens the meaning to his disciples who asked him what this parable meant. To his disciples, Jesus teaches that the seed is the word of God. The seed that falls on the path is not guarded, so it gets trampled underfoot and eaten by birds. These are the ways in which the seed is not received deeply and thus is subject to the snares of the devil. The seed that falls on the rock cannot lay down its roots, even if it is initially received with joy. This is how what seems like faith appears for a time, but then passes away because it is superficial. The seed that falls among thorns has to compete with myriad other desires and preferences and interests. This is how the lack of prioritization deprives the word of the nutrients it needs to grow. But the seed that fell on good soil is the word of God that finds a generous reception, that is nurtured in an honest and good heart, and brings forth fruit with patience. There are at least two things that we should not miss about Jesus' parable. The first is that this is not a question of whether the seed, the word of God, is given. That question is answered in the very setup of the parable. The sower sows his seed. The seed is given to all. The question of the parable is instead 
about how the seed will be received. What is in question is not the seed, but the soil. The sower has made everything depend on the soil. The second thing we dare not miss is the little detail about to whom exactly Jesus offered the further explanation after the parable. Remember, the parable was given to, quote, a great crowd comprised of many different people from town after town. The explanation, though, is not given to the crowd. It's given to his disciples who, quote, asked him what the parable meant. Who are the disciples then? They are the ones who seek to understand. They have heard his word, but they are struggling to know it. By asking him to teach them, they are seeking to allow the word to sink in deep. They are becoming good soil. They are receiving him. The evidence of their hearing well will show forth in how they act on his word. The parable of the sower inclines us to reckon with the dangerous side of Christmas. God has given his son. The question is, will we receive him? Receiving him is not about fleeting seasonal gladness or setting him alongside many other things. Receiving him is about giving him pride of place and allowing him to set down roots and bear fruit in our lives. Receiving him is about being his disciples, the ones who seek to know him and who struggle to understand him. This is indeed the dangerous reversal. He is the guest who calls us to become his hosts. And everything depends on our hospitality. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. This is a special episode of our show where I lead us through a series of reflections on the mysteries of Christmas, drawing directly from the gospel accounts as we go along. Since I've said something about the danger of Christmas, let's now start thinking about the joy of Christmas. The Lord of all comes to us wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This is God's great proposal, his knock upon the door. He would not force his way into our world or into our lives. He has come meekly. And to our credit, some of our number received him with great care. This is part of our reason for joy at Christmas. And the church schools us in the memory of this joy. Let us turn to the Nativity of the Lord. From the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And in that region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all the people. 
For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. According to St. Luke, the good news comes first to shepherds. The angelic announcement imitates an imperial proclamation, so that during the time of the emperor's census, the far greater Savior and benefactor is hereby made known. But the shepherds hear that this glory of God is given in meagerness and humility, contrary to the great images of power. From this dizzying light upon these confounding words, and after the suddenness of this event, what did the shepherds do? Luke tells us, quote, They said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The shepherds act upon what they have heard, but do not yet understand. Their initial response to the good news is to draw nearer. The next response is to proclaim what was made known to them about the child. And their final response is to return from whence they came, but now, quote, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. They hear, they seek after, they bear fruit, they rejoice at the coming of Christ. Turning our attention then to the Feast of the Holy Family, let's take two passages from Scripture. The first from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 24 to 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had borne a son, and he called his name Jesus. The second passage, Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 52. And Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth, and was obedient to them, and his mother kept all these things in her heart. God found a friend in his servant, Joseph. Here was a man who would wait upon the word of the Lord, following neither his own impulses nor the conventions of his day, but instead would obey the command of the Lord first of all. Because of Joseph's obedience, the Son of the Most High humbled himself to take cover under the name of Joseph, while the mystery of Mary's motherhood was protected under the spousal care of her most chaste spouse. Mary opened her heart to the mystery of this child, whose origin she both knew and did not know. From the time the angel came to her, she pondered the word of the Lord. We hear this, of course, in Luke 129, 2.19, 2.35, 2.52. Upon first receiving the word of God, she went with haste into the hill country and there proclaimed the glory of the Lord. She is the best soil to whom the word of God comes, ready, attentive, responsive, fruit-bearing. It was in the household of Joseph and Mary that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, as we read in Luke 2, 
verse 52. He grew from Joseph's obedience, from Mary's pondering and sacrifice. Their regard for one another and for their son, in fidelity to the Lord, created the culture in which the Son of the Most High was first received into this world. This was a family cultivated by two people who were, as St. Paul later hymned, patient and kind, not jealous or boastful, not arrogant or rude, but who suffered to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. Let's continue on then to the Feast of the Holy Innocents. From the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. The winds of malice came swiftly for Jesus, who was sheltered from this harm by the obedience of Joseph. Herod's rage at the newborn king did not reach its target. Nevertheless, there were victims. Matthew 2.16 He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. These holy innocents were the first to be confused for Christ, as every martyr thereafter would seek to be. These infants were the most vulnerable. All they could do was received. They would receive from others either care or cruelty, kindness or callousness, nurturing or neglect, what was good or what was evil. From Herod, their ruler, they received the sentence of death because of his hardness of heart and irascible pride. But the Lord hears the blood of victims crying out to him from the ground, as he did first with Abel. They are gathered up in Christ's sinless sacrifice when the time comes. In him, their memory, through the memory of the church, by the witness of the gospel and the work of the liturgy, is renewed. They received the Lord by their blood. Along with these holy innocents, Christ claims all the poor, the lowly, the victimized, and the exploited as his own. As St. Oscar Romero preached, they are the ones who truly rejoice at the coming of Christ. In a homily preached on the fourth Sunday of Advent, St. Oscar Romero said this, No one can celebrate a genuine Christmas without being truly poor. The self-sufficient, the proud, those who, because they have everything, look down on others, those who have no need even of God, for them, there will be no Christmas. Only the poor, the hungry, those who need someone to come on their behalf, will have that someone. That someone is God, Emmanuel, God with us, 
without poverty of spirit, there can be no abundance of God. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. In this special episode of our show, I am leading us through a series of reflections on the mysteries of Christmas, drawing directly from the gospel accounts as we go along. Our next mystery is the mystery of Epiphany. Reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. The star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Who are these magi? As Pope Benedict XVI attests in his study of the infancy narratives, the meaning is not clear. They were perhaps members of the Persian priestly caste, or else rulers of a distinctive religion whose religious ideas were thought to be strongly influenced by philosophy. Otherwise, they may have been possessors and users of supernatural knowledge and ability, magicians, or finally, deceivers and seducers. What is more important than ascertaining precisely who they are is noticing what they do. They fall down and worship. With whatever wisdom they possessed, whether natural or unnatural, trustworthy or illusory, they come seeking he who has been born king of the Jews. Their reading of the stars has led them to seek after understanding, and they have come to find him who is the reason for the appearance of the star that has disrupted their study. Their own ways have been disturbed, and they take notice. As Benedict XVI concludes, The key point is this. The wise men from the East are a new beginning. They represent the journeying of humanity toward Christ. They initiate a procession that continues throughout history. Not only do they represent the people who have found the way to Christ, they represent the inner aspiration of the human spirit, the dynamism of religions and human reason toward him. The star in the east, let's remember, appeared in the sky for all to see. But it is these magi who, following it, have come to worship the one to whom the star leads. Like the disciples who asked Jesus what the parable of the sower meant, the magi have stepped out of the crowd in their desire to let the meaning of this sign change them. They pass right by the arrogant ruler puffed up on his own understanding, that is Herod, because they persist in seeking the one worthy of their worship. From the Epiphany we go to the baptism of the Lord. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. I am baptizing you with water, but one mightier than I is coming. 
I am not worthy to loosen the thongs of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The first time John the Baptist was in the presence of Jesus, he leaped for joy in his mother's womb. From the start, the coming of Christ has been the source of John's joy. John is most assuredly unlike those who, when they first hear the word of God, receive it with joy. But because they do not allow the word to seek down deep, eventually they fall away. John proves that he is not rocky soil. What he rejoiced at in infancy, he rejoices at in adulthood. The coming of Christ is his joy. Welcoming the Lord is a costly sacrifice for John as an adult. When he was a child in his mother's womb, he had nothing of his own. But as a grown man, he has a following. He has realized success in his ministry. He is a man of influence. There are many thorns that could prevent John from welcoming the Lord. Indeed, welcoming the Lord now means prioritizing the one truly necessary thing and relativizing everything else. He receives the Lord under his hands. He does his part. Then he gives Jesus priority. John chooses joy in choosing Christ. On to the presentation of the Lord, Candlemas. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 34 to 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is spoken against, and a sword will pierce your own soul also that thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. The final feast of the Christmas season by its full 40-day observance, running to February 2nd, brings us to the temple, where Mary and Joseph present their son as an offering to the Lord. There are three Jewish rites combined into one event here in Luke's Gospel, but tending to that will take us away from our main point. Jesus is received by the righteous and devout man, Simeon, who proclaims the coming of this child as the salvation of all, a light to the Gentiles, the glory of Israel. The joy of receiving him, though, is again tied with the danger of his arrival. Now is the time when the true character of each heart is laid bare because the presence of Jesus forces a decision. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, the Lord speaks confounding words through the prophet to his people. At one point, the Lord instructs Isaiah to prophesy that, quote, the Lord will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble thereon. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. That's Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. 
God himself is here the rock upon which men stumble and fall. By the words of Simeon, Jesus, who is God's living word and the presence of God's saving action, is the one upon whom rising and falling will be determined. Against him, illusions will disperse and the truth will remain. He is the one who draws out the secrets hidden in the hearts of many. Why? Because everything depends on whether people will welcome him or reject him. In Jesus, God has made himself the guest and put us in the position of host. At the close of the 40 days of Christmas, the church echoes Simeon's unambiguous announcement that the Savior has come. This good news is inseparable from the imminent fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy. The thoughts of many hearts shall be revealed. It is both consoling and challenging, then, that Mary's own heart, her soul, is presented to us right in the middle of this proclamation. She is the one who never fails to bring the Word of God into her heart, to give Him priority, to offer her entire life to Him, and to sacrifice for Him. She welcomes him, even though welcoming him fully means sharing in his passion, accepting sorrow after sorrow for love of him. She will weep when he weeps and rejoice when he rejoices. She is the good soil. She nurtures us, whom she claims as her children, so that we might become good soil too. Mary thus brings us back to the beginning of everything. Indeed, we Christians have cause to rejoice. Unto us a Savior is born. But this good news is not for us alone. He seeks for us to welcome Him to the point that He may take root in our lives and bear fruit through our words and deeds. He comes to us as our guest in hopes that we will welcome him as our Lord and our God. Merry Christmas. This has been a production of OSV Podcasts. To learn more, visit osvpodcasts.com.